Thank you, everyone. And good morning. We light this chalice this morning for all who are here and all who are not. For all who have ever walked through our doors, for those who may yet find this spiritual home. And for those we cannot even yet imagine, for each of us and for all of us, may this flame burn warm and bright. Words of Eric Walker Wallstrom. Well, today's our third day together, but our first, second full day, so you all get to know each other. So we're going to have a bit of an activity to start our devotions. I invite you to look at your neighbour, just pick one, but look at your neighbour. <laughs> Just look at your neighbour for a while. Look into their faces. Look into their eyes. Okay. You don't have to stare for long. Okay? But I invite you, I invite you to see their face. See their tiredness and their sparkly eyes <laughs> see the excitement in their eyes and maybe a little bit of fear and apprehension <laughs> now look at the whole face and take a deep breath now i invite you to close your eyes just for a moment and picture in your mind the person's face that you were just looking at. And what do you see behind your closed eyes? What do you sense about them? Their likes and dislikes, their personality. What is it you like about them? So think on that for a moment. What is it you like about them? Now with your eyes still closed, silently in your heart, give the person that you looked at a blessing based on the thing you like about them. In a moment I'm going to invite you to open your eyes and then turn again to your neighbour. And when you open your eyes, I invite you to bless your neighbour with one statement of what you like about them. So open your eyes and give your blessing statement. Thank you. 
you all realise how wonderful and beautiful and likeable you are. <laughs> now, some very special young persons and younger art people are going to tell us a story by Alea Zolba Nolan called What I Like About You. <coughs> What I like about me. I like my spiky hair, it's great. When the wind blows, it still stands up straight. <laughs> when clouds appear and skies are misty, that's when my hair gets nice and twisty. <laughs> we play cool music, we have a ball. It doesn't matter if we are short or tall. Music. Music. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they're two, and then they're one. <laughs> My big ears make the girls all giggle, especially when I make them wiggle. <laughs> our freckles impress all our teachers. We think they're one of our best teachers. <laughs> Some kids have teeth that gleam real white, with braces mine twice as bright. <laughs> Mum says my glasses look distinguished. If I knew what it meant, I'd get an A in English. <laughs> Our different lunches hit the spot, a burrito, sushi, or curry that's hot. We are all different, certainly. I'm not like you, you're not like me. That's why we think that life is great. So join us as we celebrate. What is it you like best about you? Thank you, young people. Now, we're going to shake ourselves up and sing a song. What is it I like about you? You can stand, you can sit, but do sing along. Go crazy with it, have fun, dance, act out. Just be yourself. And it says Shrek on your form, but it's actually School of Rock instead. Thank <laughs> you. 
So, I now invite you again to close your eyes just for a moment. And this time I want you to picture you. Picture you. And now think of something you like about you. And give yourself a blessing. May you always remember you are a blessing too, that you are likeable and wonderful. May you always be blessed. Amen. Amen. So let us sing together our hymn at number 11 in your purple hymn books, Blessed Spirit of My Life. At that time, young people are going to go to their program. Thank you so much for a beautiful story. Number 11. <laughs> tired. We began here at summer school being invited to put away burdens or worries that we brought from home and in our first epilogue Ned invited us using Erica Hewitt's words to put down the mask that we used to put on our brave fronts. 
I'm going to ask you to think on those masks for just a moment. The mask you might wear for different people and different places. Think about how you feel when wearing the mask. Would any two people like to shout out how they feel when they wear a mask? Fraudulent. Thank you. Thank you. Now, think about how you feel when you put the mask down. Now think about what you would feel if that mask can never be put down or taken off. Scared. Maimed. Burned. Thank you. Thank you. Now how would you feel if you never had to wear the mask again? Thank you. We all have many masks to wear. Who I am, my identity and what I like about me has been filtered and shaped and realised through the mask. Influenced by many factors, but in our theme of looking at the body, I want to explore the factor of the colour of my skin and the makeup of my ethnicity. So what do I like about me? Bear with me here. So like our story, well, I like my spirally hair, be it blonde or black or red. It's easy to do when I get out of bed. I like it straight or braided or twist. I like how sometimes it makes my cat hiss. <laughs> I'm not so keen on being short and getting an A for English was always quite fraught. My feet are fine, size 7 you see, just big enough to hold up me. I like my skin and how it's brown all the time, but if you don't want to tan in the sun that too is fine. I like my culture of Jamaican white rum. After drinking a bottle, I can't find my bum. <laughs> Rice and peas, breadfruit, curry, mutton is all good too, but my favourite is fish and chips if you add something to loo. <laughs> what I like most, no one can see. My brain, because it aids me, think creatively. But probably what I like best about me is the love and endurance my mother gifted me. You see, it's not what I like about me, but the character I have developed from all who influenced me. My body is just the beginning of me. It's the deeds that I do that tell you of me. That's what I like about me.
a simple rhyme. But it was not so simple a time of becoming me. So bear with me as I explore my experience of life, my worldview, and my theology through the mask and filters of factors of my body. I have not always liked my body. I think many of us have aspects of our body we do not like. For me, for a long time, I really liked nothing. A flabby belly, short legs, long arms, big nose and an average face, and a skin tone that was picked on or portrayed negatively in the media, and to top it off, I had girly parts. <laughs> I struggled with the concept of bodily love and wondered often about that phrase in the Bible, made in God's image. Was I made in God's image? Does God look like me? All around me, the imagery of the divine did not represent me. It was the image of a man in the cloud, white of skin, grey of beard, straight European air. Or it was a fellow on the cross, blue eyes, blonde hair, tall, lean, male. In pictures, at schools, in films, shown on the screens in the 1970s, 1980s and 90s, this is all I saw. And I had to accept that the philosophical view I was told to believe was shaped by a race, not my own, and one that viewed me as other. The theology of the body for me is not rooted in the imagery of trying to be like this God image sold to me as a child. I had to find another way to connect to my God through the medium of the body. And so I looked to identity. My body is the prodigy of Jamaican immigrants that were also British subjects on arrival on this land. Their immigration status defined their life chances, their work, their living opportunities, and their hopes and aspirations for their children. Yet I was not introduced to the concept of immigrant or race until I was eight years old and made aware by my white friends in the school playground when they called me the N-word that I was different. My skin colour, not like theirs, didn't realise it before. It's my first memory of how race shaped my life. Before we were all the same, after I was different. I also have a broad multicultural and multiracial background that is wider than just being a descendant from Jamaica. My mother was mixed race, her father Jamaican Irish, her great-grandmother Jewish and Indian. There's also Chinese in the family and traces of the original native Jamaican Arawak Indians, which if you know Jamaican history, Arawak Indians who were the originally originals of Jamaica's land um, came from South America. 
long before conquest. So they related to Native Americans. And I did a semester of Native American spirituality in my undergraduate degree, connecting to the ideas of spiritual guides and spirit in everything. It expanded my philosophical understanding. On my father's side, there is Jamaican and Cuban strands, and somewhere down the line is the Scottish roots. But most importantly, my ancestry is rooted and impacted by slavery on both sides. This makeup of multiple ethnic cultures has shaped my worldview and spirituality, from an earth-centered spirituality, ancestry spirituality, to the Obia religion, as well as Christianity involving predominantly Catholicism, but also Baptists and some Pentecostal. I was raised also with bus plant medicine toxicology where dried up plants became a cure for every childhood illness, except, <laughs> except consolitis. <laughs> or live green leaves, a cure to draw out headaches and fevers. There's this plant called the leaf of life, and I still have it in my house. And you've got a headache, you put it on, you wrap a, a scarf around your head and it draws out. Don't know if it really works, but it works for me. <laughs> So healing was both a bodily function and a religious experience, delivered by God through the hands of people. Maybe you can understand why I ended up finding a home in Unitarianism. Mm -hmm. yeah. So these life experiences made me open to all religious possibilities, despite the perceived impossibility of the science behind it. My philosophical viewpoint identifies as Unitarian Universalist rather than just Unitarian because there is something important about being universal in this world. I was drawn to Unitarian Universalist because it's liberalism and it's liberation tradition of standing and fighting for the rights of the oppressed. But as I journey more into my ministry, into our Unitarian history, I have come more to understand that the liberalism that I was drawn to was that of the white male liberal, of the enlightened thinkers that populated our history. The same white male liberals that often supported slavery. And that liberalism, when looked at in our world today, impacts then and still now my black liberation. I cannot deny that there is an uncomfortable paradox when taking visitors to famous landmarks while also standing in buildings or streets named for its slave owner supporter. So the freedom and autonomy that I have now is still defined by the narratives and restrictions imposed by the empire 200 years ago, despite laws and times that have changed. So I'm going to pause a minute. And I'm going to invite you to take a moment now to talk to your neighbour and think of any stereotype phrase or narratives that you may have heard 
regarding black people or people of colour. Any that you may have heard. So let's talk to you never for a few minutes. And it will be only a few minutes. that this is a place of compassion and welcome without any judgment. I invite you to share aloud those narratives and stereotypes and myth stories so we can write some up on the flip, flip chart. So anything that you want to share, please do. And Stephanie has very kindly agreed to be my scribe for the <laughs> time. We're taking our jobs. Thank you. And houses. And to lead on from that, what we call shrewding is immigrant. They're taking our jobs, but they're lazy mm. and don't work. Thank you. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> what we call shrewding as immigrant. Yes. yes, thank you. They do very well when they come over here. Mm. Okay. That's a brilliant thing. Things I didn't think you'd think of, and I didn't think of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Low house values. Thank you. It seems rude, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing, it's just, you know. Say all that. Low house values. Oh, they low house values. Knife crime. Thank you. Have too many children. Okay. They don't smell the same. Okay, thank you. Let's, let's get uh, Stephanie to have the catch up. So, knife crime, have too many children. Oh. 
Yeah. Don't smell the same. It used to be the Irish before. Yes, very true. Years ago, someone dear to me said that black people wouldn't be interested in our movement. Yes, thank you. Yes. All the naughty words people refer to black people as. Yes. Mm. Can we just put naughty words? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dangerous and not trustworthy. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yes. Dangerous and not trustworthy. Feckless fathers. Feckless fathers. Feckless or absent fathers. Feckless absent fathers. Thank you. Picked on by the police. Yes. Stop and search. Stop and search. Scapegoated. Scapegoated. Yeah. They want to bring their laws into our country. Oh, yes. That's fine. Thank you. So, scapegoarding, picked on by the police. They don't like it. Here she comes about where they came from. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Thank you. They Stop don't fit in with the rest of the community. Don't fit in. Kiss the children, I'd be sorry for. Ah, yes, you're really not. You're doing brilliantly. Thank you. I think, but when you come here, but when you come here, once we fill this page up, we'll stop. But there's so much. Unpredictable druggies. Unpredictable druggies. Thank you. We don't want to hear their music blaring up all the time. Music, music, blaring. Yeah. Those very sort of narrow, apparent compliments. Good at music. Good at sport. Yeah. Yeah. So backwards compliments, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They're different to us. Yeah. Differences. And if you do well in school or work, it's always a surprise. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm. Thank you. They're fine, yeah. but not on my turf. Not on my turf, yeah. Thank you. I have one more. I think we've filled the page then. One more. speak English. Ah. We <laughs> <laughs> speak English. Thank you. Thank you so much for contributing to that. Really appreciate it. That coming out, and that'll be useful because I can probably do something else with that. So thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. So, do you believe there can be acts of racism without being racist? Can there be acts of racism without being racist? Yeah, yeah, no? Who's a no? Unconscious bias. Yeah. 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 No. I say no. No. Okay. Thank you. I, Good I, mix. I don't. Can I illustrate why? Mm -hmm. I grew up in a family, not just my parents, my grandparents, for whom differences were just differences, and I never, from my family, got any kind of prejudice, any kind of prejudicial ideas. In fact, quite the opposite. However, I can remember coming home fairly late on a bus when we lived in Woolwich and I was the only white person on the bus and I felt fear mm. and I don't know why. Mm. That's, that's not what I was taught but somehow that got in. I was not fair to those lovely people on the yeah. bus yeah. Yeah. but I felt fear. So yes, I believe racism can exist without being yeah. racist. Being aware of it. Very good example. Thank you very much, Celia. Go ahead. I, I think that we in this country and in the US live in a culture of white supremacy. It's a culture that is there. It's a culture of power. Mm -hmm. It's a culture that we've inherited. And we cannot 
unclaim as white people the fact that racism is there unless we with some knowing and some overt action to overcome that racism in our lives and say we are racist and, and own it and then move beyond it because it's, a, it's an ocean that was built by white supremacists. Thank you. Can I just, I've got, I've got people putting their hands up, they're very much worth time, so two short comments, so Sue and, and Jen. Just, just the whole thing of, of the habit of a lot of white people of describing each other as man and woman, but describing people of other races as black man, Asian man, Latino man, yeah. whereas they are just man and woman like we are. Yeah. So our language says yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And Jen? Well, I think just back, back, um, backing up what Judy was saying, the, our society has been, what we benefit from and what we live by has been built on the back of racism. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's not enough to move past it or not be racist. It's something that has to be actively dismantled in order to address it, which is also meaning we have to rethink how our society actually lives. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks very much for sharing your views. And I know a lot of us, this, this conversation must go on. It really must go on. But I'm going to go back to this and hopefully we'll talk about it more in the afternoon in the quest of answer time and things. The best definition of racism I heard was on the Oprah Winfrey show when Pastor Carl Lentz described the root of racism as ignorance. Ignorance being the lack of information that creates insecurity and insecurity creates defensiveness and defensiveness creates attack. It kind of describes Trump to me. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so because of the colour of my skin, and my ethnicity, my worldview has been shaped by race and racism. I have experienced racism without identifying the perpetrator as being racist. I have experienced racist without racism. Now, now that last part sounds strange, so I'd like to give you a quick example. So while I was working in prisons, and if you want to know that story, go back to the old theme talk a few years ago. <laughs> so when I was working in prisons, um, a white supremacist, white supremacist member would come up to me, more than one, would come up to me with their concerns. They identified as racist. They identified as white supremacist. But they did not spew any racism at me. So racist without racism. Mm. I want to share with you three experiences I have had in our Unitarian community that <clears throat> has influenced my need to explore ways of finding spiritual meaning in my bodily reality. In other words, looking through the lens of race at my experiences and how it speaks to me philosophically and how it's grounded my worldview. So number one, I remember when I first started attending Unitarian congregations, and I mean purely congregations, different places, and a few people 
trying to describe Unitarianism and the Unitarian community to me. And they spent time to reassure me that we weren't one of those happy, clappy people. (laughs) Number two. Once in a Unitarian Universalist congregation, when I was visiting America, I took my then sister-in-law, who happened to be a black Christian, with me to worship one Sunday at a Unitarian Universalist church. We sat beyond the couple, who was obviously in a same-sex relationship, since we watched as they held hands and leaned over and kissed each other occasionally. Now I felt at home and I smiled a lot. My sister-in-law felt uncomfortable and never went back. Number three. The third experience I want to share is having a conversation with a lifelong Unitarian in this country where the person asked me how my parents felt on arrival in England when they had to remove their grass skirts. (laughs) I share these experiences for several reasons. There is a tension between our attempts to be inclusive and our discomfort with inclusivity. A disconnect between what we say about our inclusive in theology and community and what we do in fostering an inclusive theology and community. This is where my experience of life meets my philosophical view and worldview as I explore how this is shaped by race. Often, I find that for me to be an embodied, authentic theologian in the sense of embodying all of me, I need to do so in private, rather than in association with my Unitarian community. Mary Douglas, cultural anthropologist, writing in 1973 in her book, Natural Symbols, expressed that we have two bodies, the discursive body we call society and the physical body of self. (coughs) Douglas said, the social body constrains the way the physical body is perceived. So society as one body with its dominant culture and values, and that dictates how we perceive physical bodies around us. Douglas continues, the physical experience of the body is always modified by the social categories through which it is known and therefore sustains a particular view of society. So each of our bodies, despite our racial makeup, will experience society, our worldview, through the lens of its dominant culture. This body will then modify our own perspective of ourselves, which we then continue to propagate. Is that all that clear? Yeah? So when I look at my body, it's through the lens of society's power structures and that dominant culture. And for us right now, it's white middle class men. Yeah? And when I look at the power structures, it is through the lens of those factors of my physical body 
my gender, my race, my age, my sexuality. And in the way the power structures has taught me to view those factors. It is already modified because I am already influenced by the powerful dominant culture we live in. Franz Fanon, a colonial theorist, psychiatrist, black male in the 1950s, author of Black Skin White Mask. Sorry, Black Skin White. Yeah, it's Black Skin White Mask. Was it? Yeah. Describes having to come to terms with feeling and being seen as out of place and other. This is especially prevalent in a Western culture dominated by white male heterosexuals. In it, he describes how black people find themselves wearing a mask of acceptability to fit in with the culture they live in. He explores the colonial black man psyche and he was writing in a time when women were still second-class citizens, so it was, it was really predominantly man's view he was looking at. There's a bit of women, but we're not going to go there. To define what it means to be black, to be not respected, to be unequal, to be invisible. He discovers that the only means of being seen as equal is to be perceived to be white or more accurately, to wear the mask of whiteness. To adopt the mask of the colonial powers or the ruling power, its civilities, its values, and its culture, thus to fit in. Fanon explains that the black man, in order to succeed, must learn to speak like a white man, walk like a white man, sit like a white man, even worship like the white man, desire everything white. In so doing, the black man demonstrates desiring more than anything, recognition. Recognition as human, after being labelled and, and considered <coughs> subhuman through myths and narratives, some we've identified and some like cannibalism and hypersexuality and demon worshipper and unintelligent that makes invisible the black man. This was in the 1950s. Look where we are today. So if I say to you, I don't have time to truly embody my theology, it's partly because of this mask that I have worn in society to fit in that has made invisible my understanding of my authentic self. I have spent much of my life indoctrinated in the dominant culture, acceptability in religious, political, and it is work life and spiritual matters, <coughs> living out the made in God's image theology of that dominant culture. It is only in my 40s that I have found within myself the strength of my ancestors to explore outside that box. My body, identifiable by colour and the genetic reality of DNA screening for ancestry, symbolising geographic sites such as Africa, Caribbean, Ireland and Americas, 
now aids my spiritual understanding of my bodily experiences. These experiences include institutions that carries the history of colonial power and privileges that has yet to be negated by understanding and accepting multiculturalism. The use of the word coloured to describe an experience of a black person. The stereotypical joke about your mama or black mothers. The continual use of statistics to propagate more black youths in prison as a stick to beat a narrative of genetic black criminality mm. without the equal statistics of understanding the many non-black youths who are never charged that do the same crime and go free. The ignorance and insecurity of failing to understand the power of inclusivity with the move by the spirit theology of black churches, the clapping, the stamping, the circling, the shuffling, the praise words. All these can feel like acts of racism and can perpetuate for people of colour the wearing of Fanon's white mask. The truth for me is, although our congregations are welcoming of all people, they are, truly are, it rarely does anything consistently to make welcome my black skin in the worship structure or the worship style. And so Fanon's black skin white mask still remains true today. Today, the mask may hide more pain and anger and contempt at society than a wish to fit in. And the mask is wearing thin. Through the factors of race, how is my theology embodied? Now you know those old American films where the slaves are singing spiritual songs. Yeah? They do it to express their pain of their condition and their hope and belief in liberation. We Unitarians don't do that, despite the much pain in the condition of our world. The knife crimes that we hear in our news, the homelessness we see on our streets, the kids who face difficulty in finding themselves, harming themselves, trying to raise above anxiety and depression. All are conditions of pain in our world. Our earth bleeding and dying due to pollution and global warming. So much pain. I feel denied the opportunity to express in worship that pain in ways that embrace my ethnicity. My ethnicity, my skin, often feels excluded in worship. So I often go out and put on CDs and weep and wail my pain in my room, connecting with my God, releasing my pain, and yes, I sometimes feel alone and sometimes lonely in our ex inclusive religion. I'm going to play Oh Freedom 
by Golden Gospel Singers. And it's on your sheets, on the back of your sheets. So please feel free to join in. The words are there. Stand, sit, feel free to move around if the spirit moves you. As a child, I watched my mother as she prayed everywhere and anywhere. In the kitchen, in the supermarket, on the bus, at the school gate, and in her sleep. And yes, I really mean it, she muttered her prayers in her sleep. 
It used to freak me out. <laughs> Sometimes tears would steam down her face and her voice shook loudly in passion and pain of her distress. Her body language evoked a belief that God was with her, feeling, feeling her pain, sharing her concerns and worries, embodied within her and around her and above her. As a child, I listened as my mum, in times of reflection and sadness, would sing hymns. Those hymns recognisable today as mostly funeral hymns. Maybe you know them. Rock of Ages, Old Rugged Cross, Abide With Me. The theology of the cross, the theology of being saved, the theology of redemption is embedded in those hymns of my childhood. The suffering of races of people, their hopes and dreams of salvation are in those hymns. Her embodied theology was rooted in her personal experience of suffering, in the pain of physical and sexual abuse from childhood, in the experience of emotional and physical abuse and manipulation in her marriage, in the discrimination suffered at work, in housing, in life. From an early age up to her 60s, her body was battered blue, black, red. On her shoulders was the experience of her ancestors, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother and so on, who all too were abused. My mother sang out her pain and lived out the purest and highest expression of herself in actions of helping people, caring for people, educating people, loving people. She was a beautiful human being. It was her commitment to her God, her capacity to forgive, her compassion and love for the world that has most shaped my spiritual understanding, my faith journey and my life. It is now that I am discovering how important the body is, what it does, how it's placed, what it wears and how we express our values. Now bear with me, I'm going to get this name wrong, but it's Mimi Feng Nung, scholar in women's studies and ethnic studies at Berkeley expresses that clothing the body can transform and render a body into being as or being like some other thing. Hence when a clergy dog collar is worn it transforms a person into a, a perceived messenger of God as opposed to a dog collar with spikes that sends out a messenger of punk or alternative. <laughs> yeah. In the same way as a hat on a woman's head in black churches signals coming to God in respect, covering the head. It transfigures, straddling in the interplay of individual agency, religious transubstantiation and societal interpretation. But even individual agency is constrained by the structures of the the structuring of the construct of race and the imposed determination of narratives of racial groups. 
Just so, for example, those who embody the hijab, although they're individual choices, it also embodies the religious and societal interpretation of this form of bodily dress, both positive and negative. In the same way that wearing the hoodie or the head wrap embodies an array of stereotypes and myths and the interaction on how we live our theology in our world. The dressing of the body narratives a story often imposed by others or embedded within and shaped by race and other factors. For a long time after coming to Unitarianism, I dressed in my Sunday best when attending or leading worship. My Caribbean background insisted on this dress philosophy as bringing my best self to God. Just as ablution, ablutions for Muslims bring their clean self to God. In the black church of my youth, those who didn't dress their best were low on God's regard and low in the power structure of the church organisation. The dog collar being the highest, the suits, the necks powerful and so forth. But my dress also marks my everyday practice of joy in being. The joy of embracing my freedom, my natural qualities of who I am through my body. From dressing my hair in braids or locks or curly hair, black or blonde or red. From tattoos I have, I embody individual agency but also, also cultural significance going back to Africa, India, Native Americans. Aspects of culture that once was viewed as negative or primitive and was discouraged, I now can embrace because the world view has changed. I can wear green for connection with the planet Earth, red for joy and sensuality. <laughs> Although for some tribes it, it um, signals fertility or death. I can make gold for the sun, the giver of life energy. Colours allow me to feel connected to my divine and imbue in me an energy of purpose. My body then moves with purpose, embodied with power to do and be in this world. Colouring my air is also an outing of myself to myself as being visible in a world where I and many people of colour often feel invisible. It tells me I'm not just a clog in the machine or the machinery. I'm not so dark that I'm invisible in the dark. I am vibrant and here and me. I am red of the sunset or yellow of the stars my ancestors looked up to and worshipped. I am the brown of the soil that feeds and nourishes earth and the people. I am with meaning and I have meaning and I am relatable to everything. I am a black woman that has lived trying to find my voice. I have wrestled with trying to embody the God of my ancestors, 
the guards that gave them strength through their discrimination that they suffered due to their ethnicity. Michael Angelo Robertson, a seminary student in New York, published on YouTube, so you can look it up if you want to, Journey to Liberation. And Michael said, I have this belief that the body holds memory and there is something ontological about being black and female that is divine, that is healing, and that is so necessary and vital for our community. The body holds memory. My body holds the memory of my ancestors, the suffering and redemption of people torn from their shores, transported across lands and oceans, through slavery, colonialism, civil rights and now fake news. My body holds the memory of the tears of my ancestors, those ancestors that walked trails and were strong, resilient, determined, compassionate. Those ancestors that survived and thrived through all kinds of adversity and controversy. And so I embody that memory that my body holds. I embrace my understanding of being of a being higher than myself. I embrace my blackness and my femininity. I live over and beyond the factors that try to distort and pos the possibilities of this world using factors of race and gender and sexuality. This world that can be wonderful. I live out the ideas of supreme strength and supreme purpose that my ancestors, as Maya Angelou embodies in her poetry, out of the huts of history's shame, up from the past that's rooted in pain, I rise. Let me give you Maya Angelou's poem. You may write me down in history, with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and light suns, with a certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, Still, I'll rise. Do you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't take it awfully hard, because I laugh. <laughs> Like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may suit me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I'll rise up from the past that's rooted in pain. 
I'll rise. I am black ocean, leaping and wide, wetting and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into the daybreak that's wonderfully clear. I'll rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I'll rise. I'll rise. I'll rise. So now I embody my body, the dressing of it, the movement of it, the sounds it makes in expression of divine, the colour of it. You know when you watch on TV and see people in black shirts just calling out their amens? Look at amen. Amen. And hallelujahs. <laughs> and speak out their prayers. Why can't we do that? <coughs> we should. My My ancestors embraced the moment, the wind, the spirit, the space, the opportunity to connect with their divine. Yet I wear the mask and I weep inside at my limitations. Embodying my theology happens in the quiet of listening for the spirit, listening to others and their struggles and their joys as they navigate the world. I embody my theology through the lens of trying to understand the factors of race and the behaviours of others around me, as well as my own behaviour. My worldview, shaped by factors of race, means I embody protest, such as Black Lives Matters, and music that speaks of resistance. And in my work life, I practice being very intentional in embodying diversity and encouraging multi-ethnic bodily responses in my worship. I strive to create a place where I would like to walk into any of our congregations and feel my skin tone, my ethnicity represented within the style and the structure of worship, even if there is no other of my skin tone in the congregation. I want inclusivity to be at the heart of all our congregations, where the mask can safely be removed and the diversity celebrated. I do not want to hear again comments about we are not happy clapping or praise be congregations. Because each time we tell others what we are not, we are saying we are an exclusive community with limited welcome. That's right. Amen. I want us to say clap if you want. Say amen if you want. Pray, dance, sing, hold hands, kiss, wave your arms for who you are, whoever you are. No mask is needed here for all of you is accepted and welcome the way you are but what has shifted the most for me on my journey of embracing god in personal experiences is the understanding that the factors of race do not define me it enlightens me 
it emboldens me and it emancipates me. May my sharing of my experience free you too. Thank you for listening. I'd like to end with playing Redemption Song by Bob Marley. And feel free to leave and go to your break as you wish. Thank you. <laughs>